Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, unbelievably November 3rd, 2022. Jeff O'Neill, she's Rebecca Shinsky. Coming to you from bookriot.com. Does talking about best books of the year feel better now that it's, a, it's an end <laughs> month and it's a November? Moderately. Are you Moderately just bringing better. this up so we can talk about how on a sales call this week you got to confirm that you were right about well, we how we learned those... some nuggets this week. I, I'm not sure what to do with those. Do you want to? Well, we'll do that after the first sponsor break because we were on sales calls and as we do from time to time talking to publishers and, and marketers and publicists about what's going on in their lives. Um, never one to let brownie point, or I don't think this is not brownie point, but just points go unscored. Just um, a straight up opportunity to remind me that you were right. I respect it. I mean, anyway, we can. I think it, people might find that interesting as well. We've got some follow up to do. Um, also on the Patreon that's up now, we brought back our deals, deals, deals format in which I go through the deals I've picked out that were announced primarily through Publishers Launch, but through other places too that I see news and talk about books that are going to come at some point in the future from as early as February 2023, I think was the earliest, and the latest being sometime in 2027, um, which was a talking point about what book that is. I think if you did a little of, if, if you listen to this show, you could probably make an educated guess about who's getting book deals in 2027 right now. But if you haven't listened to that already, do that. I, I think we got some nice feedback on the Patreon as well. I, we're going to do this quarterly as a Patreon. There's enough there. Um, this episode, I'd only gone back through three months of deals, and I had, I think, I didn't count. I, I just did. I just worked up the title and author list. I think there were like 30 or 40 titles. Um, easily could have been more. Lots of fun mm-hmm. there. Um, if we read five of those books, that would be good. <laughs> but it's fun Between to talk about Between next year and 2027, Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple yeah, for sure we'll read, fun. but there's a lot we're like, oh, that's interesting. Or what about this? Or what does this mean? Yeah, it's, you know, I look at those publishers lunch deals every day also. And what's amazing is I, I think probably I'm not paying as deep yeah. of attention to them because I know that you're taking notes and we're going to do it <laughs> on the show. But I am always surprised by which ones that you've pulled out. Most of them are ones I had never heard of before. I didn't process deeply enough that I had read those announcements. There are so mm. many book announcements all the time. So many of them are fun and interesting and weird. And I think the Deals, Deals, Deals bonus episodes are among my favorite of the bonus formats that we've come up with. It's that's one of my favorite ways to be surprised and delighted. (laughs) And um, I guess being I don't one question I have, and I don't know this, is does every book or most books get a mention in this from oh, like how much of this question. marketing publicity that's a segue to say that we're going to record right after this regular episode our next patreon episode in which we are discussing liberation day by the great george saunders by ranking the nine short stories in liberation day according to how george saunders they are and it made me wonder <laughs> did liberation day you know george saunders is a major author does mm-hmm. every book acquisition or whatever, make it appearance there. I don't know what we're missing there. And I know some things get put in there as part of the publicity building buzz, you know, getting on people's radar. Like there's a bunch of, it leads with debuts. And I'm not really Mm -hmm. sure why, except I think that that's where people are really trying. That's the beginning of someone's career. The announcement of their debut acquisition is, you know, announcing to the publishing world that this is a thing that's coming. And for me, I also find that the least interesting because I know nothing about these people. I'm just reading the blurb, but I'm not really sure how that pans out. I've wondered about the utility of that as well. And I'm curious about how much of it is author service. Like you just got your first book deal. And one way that you're going to start feeling fancy is that this will be officially mentioned in our trade publications within the industry because it is so far out. Most of them don't have publication dates. In most cases, those books are far from being finished. Often this is an idea for a book that a person has sold. Right. And still has to go write the book. Um, So 
in terms of like we were we were discussing like should we even put all of the titles from deals 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 in the show notes on patreon and we have updated those because folks asked for them but like some of them are so far out and these dates that they give for publication are specious at best (laughs) that you can't even really be like well i'm going to put that on my tbr for the year 2027 (laughs) i guess you could but then if you're able to track those all those kinds of titles and then actually when 2027 rolls around keep up with oh here comes the publication date for that thing i've been waiting for for five years that's a debut that sounded interesting to me in 2022 that's a level of attention that i find amazing um it's super interesting to me what the use of those announcements is beyond just this is official, we have made an announcement because it's way too far out for like a bookstore to start planning an acquisition or for librarians to put them in the collection (laughs) or any of the reasons you were right about best books of Mm. the year lists being useful to people. I like to keep bringing this up. Maybe we should do this vamping prologue longer. More mentions that I was right. It's really (laughs) I'm going to lean into it. This is my early Christmas gift to you because we're we're allowing best books of the year list creep, so we're going to do gift creep also. Enjoy it while it's here, Jeff. You were I would right. like to know myself as well. Um, who extracts the most value out of those? Like, who, who is the prime, I can't live without this user? Is it other acquiring editors to see who's doing mm. what? Is it other agents to see who they should be querying with what? I, I, I really don't know. Or is it kind of sport? Which is fine if it's sport. Yeah. We, we use it yeah. as sport. This is really entertaining. We do. But just to kind of see a what's going on. A very nice deal. <laughs> very. I, the euphemisms are wonderful. Is the biggest one is a major deal or is a significant deal? I oh, I can never remember. Point. It goes from a nice deal, I think is the lowest appellation given, to a nice deal, a major deal, a significant deal. And I think there's another one in there. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And they have when associated price you're in the seven figures, ranges. yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if we're supposed to infer from that that anything that doesn't have a modifier on it is just a regular deal or and or the terms are being, even the ballpark terms are being withheld. So mm-hmm. it could be anything. But I think the in an significant or major deal that is that is a sign of something. Like someone's trying to yes. say something there when they're really they don't have to they could tell the book title um and an author and synopsis and that's, everything without that bit of information. Yeah, that's a great point. That's where you start to then get the stories about and, yes. and I think the timing of releasing those announcements is pretty strategic in that uh. case. It's not necessarily that that deal gets announced as soon as the deal is made, but I I have the sense that those are used to start the publicity machine because it comes out in Publisher's Lunch, say like a debut writer getting a seven-figure deal for their first novel. Mm-hmm. And then pretty soon PW has picked it yes. up. So now it's it's out of the paywall of Publisher's Lunch. And then the publicist for that title is running on trying to get the New York Times to interview this debut novelist who got a seven figure deal for a book that's not even out yet. And then we're all talking for months about this million dollar or multi-million dollar debut novel and will it be good or not? Um, And that has worked in authors' favors and against them, I think, in the last couple of years, because not everything you pay seven figures for is going to do seven figures in sales. And there's only so much marketing uh, that you can try to, you know, beat the market into submission of of buying the thing you're trying to sell it. (laughs) Sometimes it doesn't work. And we've done this enough and paid enough into deals that we do have examples in our own working memory Mm -hmm. of Garth Risk Halberg getting a seven-figure deal. And then also, yeah, Jesse getting a seven-figure deal. Right. At that level, at debut, at showing mm-hmm. up there, I'm thinking, whoa, seven-figure deal for a debut novel. Are there even 10 of those a year? I'd be shocked if there's even oh. 10 of those a year. Five? Yeah. For debut? They're so, yeah, they're Litter- such outliers. It, it makes them into big stories on their own. Yeah, yeah. I think probably I do. I think your point about some of it is strategic about the announcement is interesting, too, because Sometimes it's not even Publisher Week within Run. Then there's a simultaneous or Neil simultaneous piece somewhere else about the mm-hmm. deal. So they, mm-hmm. you know, gave someone else um, a little bit more of a story. I think the other thing that happens is for book scouts for adaptation rights, they oh, start yeah. trumpeting that early because they want to be out there. And maybe it's even been acquired. Like I don't even know. Do some of these significant deals? 
are they giving them a significant deal because they kind of know it's going to be optioned and they know they're going to get some rocket fuel mm. from that? I'd be so fascinated. Maybe. To know and this works. I'm, I've been hearing from a friend who does some adjacent stuff in mm. the both works, like kind of straddles books and movies and, and does some scouting um, for book titles for movies that sometimes the manuscript is out on submission to publishers yeah. and studios at the same yeah. time. And it's a game of, well, if a movie studio picks this up, then we can use that as leverage to get a book deal in the same way that if you get a big book deal, you can use it as leverage to try to get an adaptation. But the fact that that can go either way, that it's not just unidirectional now, if it needs to be a book and we need to think there's an audience for this book right. before we even start down the adaptation path is, a, I think, just a fascinating byproduct of really the streaming wars at this point. I remember reading about Project Hail Mary in Publishers Lunch. I believe, I, I, my memory is this, whether that's true, but my memory is so take that for what you will, was that the Publishers Lunch had the announcement of the book and that Scott Rudin had acquired the rights to make it into a movie, like mm. on the same mm-hmm. email. So that just speaks to the synchronicity and the, the internal dealings that we're never really going to know, but we can kind of infer by the public yeah. communication we see. Anyway, um, so check that out, bookwritepodcast.com, or no. Patreon.com slash podcast will be a link in the show notes. Let's do our first sponsor break and then come back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, we asked last week for people to email into us if they wanted to get, share us their feelings about what their totally appropriately timed best book list release <laughs> favorites were. You know, they're all mm-hmm. released exactly when they should be. What, Is what anybody no on one, my side here? Like Raskolnikov says, what if it's true that no one's a scoundrel and all as it should be, as he <laughs> says in Crime and Punishment? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that we didn't mention that was mentioned several times was NPR's book concierge. Which I discount for this reason. Uh, Not I discount it. I don't really consider it a best books of the year list for this reason. It's got like 300 titles on it. (laughs) You you can't do it. I mean, I think it's a wonderful tool of discovery. It's a gift guide. It's a gift guide. Yeah, it's a great tool. I'll put a link in the show notes. People talk about how they they spend time trolling it and there's various filters. It's more of a tool and a gift guide than is a best of year list because I, I just don't think you can give a best of list that is, what, 30 times <laughs> the number of books even a v- pretty good reader is going to do in a year. I don't think you can yeah, do it. I agree. I think you got to no. do some, you got to pick something. You got to choose some battles. So I've always used for myself, always, not since I was four. <laughs> I mean, I probably started this when I was six or seven years old, um, <laughs> saying I can recommend about 10% of the books I personally have read. Mm-hmm. If any more than that, you know, I want to I recommend the best stuff, the, the most notable, the most remarkable, the most striking, the things that people are really going to stick with people. Now, again, there are more than 3,000 books published in a year, but that's just too many. That, that's too much it's to, too to many. do what I yeah, want, I, what I think people expect the best books of the year list to do. I do think the timing that they release that NPR Books Concierge on is smart and that they intend it to be a yep. gift guide. It is pretty clearly how, what, who are you shopping for? What kind of books are you looking for? Let us help you find them. And it has the knock-on effect of, mm. oh, hey, if you're looking for books for yourself, you can use this too. Which, speaking of that, we're getting ready for our own yeah, holiday nice. gift recommendation well, well show. Thank you. That's what they call a segue mm. in the biz. And if you are wanting some help from us to recommend some books for folks in your life or for you. We are big fans of the self book request for the holiday season. Start sending those requests in to podcast at bookriot.com. We do them first come first serve. So the sooner you send in your request, Mm -hmm. the more likely it is that we will get to it on the show. Um, And we're going to release those the week of Thanksgiving and the week right after, I believe. Um, So you will have those in your hot little hands in plenty of time to trot down to your favorite bookstore or navigate your way on the web to your favorite online retailer and do that. But get them in now, send them in. I always love this part of the year, getting to scroll back both through the things we read this year and other stuff. We just draw on people and ask such interesting questions and there's surprises every time around. So again, that's podcast at bookriot.com for your holiday gift recommendation requests. I was going to float to you 
offline. I mean, we're always online, mm. but off air, I guess. <laughs> the air being the internet. And different internet. Oh. I was going to say to you on different internet. <laughs> off mic. This. Yeah, off mic. <laughs> Though we're still using mic. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I think as a bonus Patreon, we might do our f- our picks for the 10 greatest Swiss Army gift recommendation books of all time in our reading Ooh. lives. What do you think of that as an idea? I like that as an idea. You're trapped in a Barnes & Noble and you have to give 10 people you don't know a gift. What do you pick? A very specific <laughs> hostage situation, actually, when I think about it at this point. Um, but I do like the idea of these aren't our favorite books of the year of, of all time necessarily or the best or the most popular, but the kind of book where most people who are interested in reading at all are going to like something. Now, mm-hmm. do not ask us for my uncle who hates reading. What should I get him? <laughs> it's not our job to fix your uncle. Or not fix, as a case may be. It's fine not to, But that is a tall order to do in two minutes. So please don't do that. For They don't really like to read, but uh, that's insolvable. Um, but I mean, for someone who's You don't want me to trot primed, out for the like 11th year in a row my talk about why forcing, trying to force people who don't like to read to read <laughs> <laughs> is counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the theory is they just haven't found the right book, which I guess is probably true. But to find the right needle in a stack of needles that's going to um, stitch that up, I don't know where I'm going with this embroidery <laughs> metaphor here. Felt like there was something and turned into nothing. Um, that, that's very tough. We'll give it the old college try, but know that that's always difficult. It, it's as hard for us as it is for you mm-hmm. uh, when making that <laughs> recommendation attempt. Um, let's see. Saunders we're talking about. Oh, a little more um, follow-up. This came from a news piece I saw. And then also there's some little birdiness about how Mm. exceptional Audible's deal with Apple really is. Um, Okay. About, you know, what is allowed in your app to buy an audiobook. And even according to the published rules, Audible should not be allowed to do what it does in the Audible thing. And Spotify is making hay out of either not being transparent and equally um, Mm -hmm. uh, applying the rules which I don't even think they need to do. I, I don't know why a business is, imp- we don't have to, you don't have to give everyone the same deal. You can't discriminate right. for certain reasons that are you know embol- uh, codified in law, but it's pretty common for your, you know, to, to give a sweeter deal to a bigger client. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not really sure how that's like a gotcha moment that people seem to think it is. Just yesterday, I got an email from Audible letting me know that now I can buy individual audiobooks in the Audible app on my phone without needing credits. You can? Which apparently... Wow. Huh. It was a like It was an Audible user, you know, email that I assume went to everybody, and I just happened to catch it when I was scrolling through the promotions I'm opening tab up my Audible app. This is what people tune Gmail. in for. The people like, want me to get on my phone and look for stuff. <laughs> Well, I was going to mention it to you. Okay. It's like, yeah, it looks like now you can just, you got to pay the list price rather than, or if you don't want to do the credit situation, you can just pay Mm. the list price. So now you can acquire your audiobooks from Audible, whichever way you choose, via credits or cash Mm. on your phone without having to navigate to a browser. So whatever special treatment Apple is getting from, or Apple is giving to Amazon, it's even specialer (laughs) than we thought. Well, this allows me to buy another. So I've used my I use my Audible credit for the month. I only do one a month, and I bought it for a song mm-hmm. of the cell, and it doesn't re reload until the middle of the month for reasons I guess about when I signed up for it. Oh, November fifth. So okay, I know everyone wants to know Coming when I soon. can buy the next one, but it says right now buy one Audible credit, you will be charged fifteen ninety nine plus taxes. Buy now. I don't and remember maybe that's being the, able to do this before. Yeah, maybe that's the workaround: is buy a credit and then redeem it for the book. Um, I didn't get they they didn't have small print. But even about a credit then is a digital good. Details. Like how is buying yeah, a credit? Yeah, right. I mean that seems yeah. weird. Law of it, the big promotional mailer was just like now you can buy them without credits, and I was like I'm gonna poke at this, <laughs> not yeah. today. And then if I buy three Audible credits, I will be charged $40 plus taxes. Well, that's helpful. Thanks so much. I know I like all these bundling <laughs> options that you give me. It's so wonderful. Choice so I don't know that's going to go right anywhere there. now. It looks like that Spotify has pulled the ability to buy audiobooks from its app on, on mm-hmm. iPhones or Apple products writ large. Um, I guess not a shock um, to see there. But 
I don't know where this is going to go. Um, I guess to some, as, uh, our favorite thing to cover, as we've said, is the regulatory bodies of the uh, <laughs> European Union appellate courts. A lot of spend a lot of time there. It's hot out. discourse. <laughs> it really is. Uh, let's see. I guess so. The big story of the week, though, speaking mm-hmm. of regulatory bodies, um, there you go. Judge Florence Pan is that her name? Mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. What a great name, Florence Pan. Uh, decided, you know what, PRH, not so much with you buying Simon & Schuster and you have to appeal or do something else. Yep. And it's it's not dead. Well, there, here you go. That's how I'll throw it to you. Is this dead, Rebecca? Did you read this as dead? I didn't read it as dead. It, well, it's not dead yet because mm-hmm. it is expected that both publishers will appeal. But then today, Publishers Marketplace had a that deeper piece too. Yeah. noting that... So the original deal happened in November, September or November of 2020. I guess it would have been November of 2020. So it's been two years. And apparently it was, we've got two years to get this done. And then, of course, the Justice Department steps in and and delays that. But the deal is for billions of dollars. And there's functionally a kill fee of 220-something million. And this appeal will take much longer than the original agreed upon period for the deal to occur, which I believe expires later this month. It's like in 12 days, you know. Yeah, it's um, very soon. I can't even get to the so, DMV in 12 days, so I don't think this is happening. <laughs> right. So the higher order question is, if Penguin Random House appeals this, where will it go? Will they be able to purchase Simon & Schuster? But before that can even happen, Simon & Schuster gets to decide if they're going to give Penguin Random House the time to appeal or I, presumably if they don't think that there's enough likelihood of winning an appeal or they just want out and they'll take their $220 million, then they will declare it dead and PRH will have to pay the kill fee. Mm-hmm. Um, so then also news today was that Simon & Schuster's revenue was up 10% uh, this quarter, either this quarter or over last year, I guess it would be this quarter. Um, but profits are flat. So that you know cost of goods and labor and stuff yeah. is higher than they must have been anticipating. But Simon & Schuster doing okay, Um, seems to think that they would be an appealing asset to someone else, though the big question is if Penguin Random House is not allowed to buy Simon & Schuster, who else will try? (sighs) Private equity? I mean, so the crux of the case was really built around, and it's mentioned in the judge's decision, that it would lessen the competition for Mm top-selling authors. Like, that was the crux of the matter, which is weird in like nine different ways that I'm not sure it's interesting to talk about. But wouldn't any acquisition by another publisher of any size also lessen it? So it's always a question of of degree, right? Of course, any kind of same thing. Now, would Macmillan buying it be different? That's kind of your implied question is another publisher that's not PRH. Right. Yeah. There, I mean, the combined market share that Macmillan and Simon and Schuster would have is much smaller than the combined market share that PRH and Simon and Schuster would have. So that may be a factor like that combination might be, I guess, small enough together that the justice department wouldn't even object to it. That's a possibility. Who knows? Um, But the, the piece, and we did comment on it when the, trial was happening, the way that the DOJ was focusing on deals of $250,000 or more, which are outliers statistically in the world of book deals, did seem strange to us. And that seems like if Penguin Random House appeals it, that will be a core part Mm -hmm. of the appeal. In their response statement that they released yesterday, PRH said that the DOJ's focus on advances to the world's best paid authors instead of consumers or the intense competitiveness in the publishing sector runs contrary to its mission to ensure fair competition. So a little preview there, I think, of what the argument might be if they Mm. do appeal. I'm very curious. I guess I've been doing the like, if I were in the Simon & Schuster boardroom, which way would I go on this? And 220 million is a lot of money, but it's not 2.75 billion. (laughs) So I think I might give PRH a little time to appeal it and see what happens. And if they appeal and they don't win then you learn some things along the way about why that appeal gets turned down and maybe what other kinds of buyers right. Simon and Schuster might be more successful courting. So I think I would be inclined to let this continue if I'm Simon and Schuster and try to see it through. Um, I don't know. Where are you sitting on it? Um, I kind of don't care, I guess. I guess I'm interested <laughs> from a 
sideline, you know, watching yeah. the basketball game that I kind of don't care who wins, but the game itself is interesting. Um, I totally feel that. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a lot of huge feelings about it. I guess, you know, a subplot I found interesting was um, in in some conversation we had, we did hear from some Simon & Schuster people saying that things are going well for them. They're not, mm-hmm. they're not being acquired out of a desperation, keep the lights on, fire sale. Like they're an asset, right? They're being bought at a premium of revenue. So their business is good as, as their financial results suggest. So they're going to be okay, whichever way this goes. But the wrinkle I was thinking of is that one of Simon & Schuster's imprints is Atria, and Atria yes. publishes the most popular books by a little oh, author right. called Colleen Hoover. Colleen Hoover, right. And that makes me wonder, <laughs> is Simon & Schuster worth more today than when they signed the deal two years ago? Because that was before this thing really took off. Mm. So in some respects, I'm wondering if Simon wouldn't mind going back out to market saying, we've got 19 novels by this phenomenon, and maybe that's worth more and are, you know, probably, I think Simon's results are going to be unusually good for yes, publishing writ yeah. large because of this, which leads into another point that I wanted to bring up earlier about some of the stats behind Colleen Hoover and her most recent book. But they've got they've got a feather in their cap. In fact, their cap is a feather, and it's made out of <laughs> Colleen Hoover's money at this point. <laughs> yes. Show title. Um, so I'm not sure... If you're Simon, are you crying tears? Because here's your options. Either PRH does appeal and we get a little coupon for waiting, kind of like in a big short where your premium goes up, right? When you mm-hmm. when you want to extend the deal. Or they nuke the deal. They give us $200 million, Not nothing, right? That's margin. Right. That's just you get to keep that. And then we get to go out and, and trade our wares because our, our farm is even more um, productive than it was two seasons ago because it turns out everyone wants... Um, pistachios. <laughs> and now we've got pistachios in kind of the only place to get them. I don't know about trees. Yeah, that's a... Um, that's a thing. I mean, I, that's a true, you know, speculators game yes. in the in the sense of the kind of bets that they would be making both on the long-term durability of Colleen Hoover's popularity, not to mm. mention the long-term future of TikTok in the United States. <laughs> I mean, have fun. Guess betting yeah. on that. Fortunes are made and lost <laughs> and probably equal measure. Um, at that particular point. So I don't know. I, I was thinking the other day, um, I was reading about, um, I was reading a business book about mergers and acquisitions, about how most of the time they don't pan out for the acquiring mm-hmm. party. And it got me to think about why Penguin Random House is doing this versus what they could be doing with the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder from a, don't forget about it. I mean, throw it in the mix, but deprecate for a moment the competitive landscape but just in terms of the quality, the vibrancy, the innovation of publishing writ large, wouldn't it be more interesting for Penguin Random House to take that resource and try to make their business better somehow? Because this is just mm-hmm. more publishing. It's not better publishing. It's not different publishing. Buying Simon Schuster is just more publishing. And it suggests to me that they don't have a lot of um, marginal better ideas than buying more of what they already do with the, with the I free think that's cash right. flow. And yeah, maybe that tells you that something about the industry, but I find that a little depressing, I guess, as a as a yeah, watcher of the publishing industry. We've talked about how the big unsaid but very present thing in that in the whole trial was Amazon. And yeah. we can't say that we want to make this acquisition and possibly approach some sort of monopoly so that we can push back against yeah. Amazon. You can't use that as an arg- as a legal argument, but it feels like it is very much part of the game. And if that's what PRH is solving for, and they're just playing a game of trying to bulk up their side of the field, rather than investing $2.75 billion in, which is just an insane amount. That's so much money. Incomprehensible amount of money to people who run a small business with 22 employees. Yes. Um, Just it's incomprehensible, the innovation that might be available. And you could have a lot of bad ideas that don't work. Yes. If you're spending $2.75 billion trying to hit on a couple that do that might give birth to some new things that would create competitiveness or that mm. might disrupt Amazon in some capacity in the position that they have in the industry. And that is, 
I hope that that was a part of the conversation when PRH was deciding if they were going to do this. I hope that there are conversations at the highest levels over there about spending money also on innovation to shore up their position. That's not just who could we acquire to try to be bigger. Um, But I do think it reveals or I agree with you. It seems to reveal a, a dearth of creative solutions. Yeah. So and maybe they're already doing a bunch of stuff. I know PRH has tried some things that we've talked about with, let's say, tepid interest over time, reader rewards programs, their websites, you know, a bunch of other things. I don't know. Um, It's not like, I I think it's more interesting if they're like, let's go into the lab and do a bunch of R&D and whatever Mm -hmm. that looks like. It's like when Pfizer has to go buy an upstart biotech company because they've got excess cash and they don't know what to do with it. And someone else has an interesting patent and interesting um, intellectual property to go after. Um, so anyway, there's that story. I guess while we're on the um, Colleen Hoover, it's Colleen Hoover's world and we're all just <laughs> lip syncing in it. Um, this is from NPD Bookskin, uh, their weekly sort of, um, I, I got subscribed to this, I think maybe proactively, maybe not. It's one of the few times that if I didn't, I'm sure glad they give a little weekly debrief. And this is a number I think I shared with you. No, I shared uh, Colleen Hoover. It starts with us week one, but then mm-hmm. also Colleen Hoover year to date, YTD. 800,000 print copies of It Starts With Us in week one. And that doesn't include, of course, digital or audio. That's not quite Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Remember that? That was like <sighs> 1.2 million yes. a few years ago. But sure is close. <laughs> but that's that's as big a number as you can really get without being J.K. Rowling. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean mm-hmm. I'm not saying that facetiously. Um, no. And that was a play, and it's a weird pocket snow globe story, and there's a still weird things to say about that. But that's a lot of units. And then oh, this what? was the week before. Colleen Hoover year-to-date, as of the week ending October 22nd, had sold 10.1 million print units in 2022. <sighs> print units. Print units. And it is not the most dominant annual run in NPD book scan history. That belongs to E.L. James, who mm. in the total year 2012 Rebecca would you like to guess how many units EL James sold in the calendar year of 2012 oh, uh, 2012 me would definitely have had this on the tip of her tongue um, and this is the white know. hot center of this right all the books are out yeah. it's all firing right. people are buying random house employees it's are getting $5000 right wasn't it's it like the, 25 million it was big it's it 14.1 uh, 14.4, okay. pardon me, um, for the year. So with two months and a week to run, Colleen Hoover is 4 million units behind. So forty, probably not going to get there for the mm. year. Now, having said that, I almost find this even more impressive because E.L. James was getting like profiled on CBS Sunday morning and only, and it was like a household name it in was. the culture, even for people who had never... I still don't think Colleen Hoover is he there yet. So Mm-mm. as its own phenomenon, it's the biggest small phenomenon I can remember. Like E.L. James breaks through into pop culture. We've talked about this ad nauseum. Yeah. Harry Potter breaks through. I still don't feel like Colleen Hoover is broken through to the point where someone's and, and the, the litmus test I've used, and maybe I've mentioned this before, is if someone did an SNL skit about this, would, would, <laughs> would people, people get know? it? Would people yeah, get it? Yeah, I think... I think that's right, because there's nothing gimmicky about, well, there's plenty gimmicky about the writing. There's nothing, yeah. which is my it's a whole other position. kettle of fish. Yeah, there's, there's a whole <laughs> other conversation. But there's, uh, there's nothing uh, like extraordinary, extraordinarily gimmicky about the mm. story, I guess, where E.L. Where e. James had, I think, all the elements that we d- disliked about Colleen Hoover. E.L. James also had those. And uh, the BDSM kink yeah. element that was... Titillating. It was titillating. It's taboo. It makes for a great headline. The stories of... that, Like the plots of the Colleen Hoover books hmm. are not titillating in that way. Um, and that's the missing piece. Like as you were saying that, I was realizing, and I can't believe I haven't thought of this yet, we haven't been hearing about movie deals for Colleen Hoover, which I think is also I a sign of breaking I think I mentioned at one point, what are, what are the options looking like right now? I yeah. mean, is someone looking and, for an overall? Is it going to be a Colleen Hoover expanded universe? I think it's a great yeah, question. And, and at this point in the E.L. James, by the end of 2012, 
E.L. James. I think we knew there were going to be Fifty Shades of Grey movies. We didn't know much about them. Uh, Um, But the movies even came out pretty, the first movie came out pretty quickly on the heels of the whole thing happening. And Mm. you would think if that, like if there were going to be an It Ends With Us adaptation, we would have been hearing about it and whatever studio was producing it would be trying to get as much of that done as they could while the TikTok phenomenon is still happening. While we could it's have still just hot. missed it too, honestly. You know, if you've seen it, that's if true. you know anything out there, podcast. But it's certain, I mean, that's the other problem with the adaptation Gold Rush is like another bunch of people coming from Oklahoma to San Francisco is just another group of people going to San Francisco at this point. And we could have missed it. And as the, maybe someone got in earlier um, on mm-hmm. it, but we covered how Weirdly, we covered the media's lack of coverage of Colleen Hoover before the media actually started covering. (laughs) And I think it stands to reason that um, that may not have been only to mainstream media, maybe the book scouts or or other people doing it. Also, the rights seems like a bit of a mess. She has has books in multiple houses. Mm -hmm. I guess it ends with and starts with us are both Atria. Um, I think they could be Montlake. I... Some of the new books are Grand Central. It's confusing. Yeah. And I don't know if that has anything to do with it as well. Maybe she's trying to figure that out. I'm just Googling, and it does look like, as of a couple of days ago even, Justin Baldoni, who worked on Jane the Virgin, Uh um, had the rights and is apparently finished with a screenplay for It Ends With Us, but there's no casting news, no production news, and, of course, no release date planned. So. Unlikely also, that that will come out while this is still hot, hot. But. Yeah, I feel, I mean, if you want to listen to our full takes on Ends With Us, <laughs> you can go check out the Patreon. I feel like that's a very difficult adaptation. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my own opinion on the book is getting in the way a little bit. Mm-hmm. I have a hard, usually I can imagine what the adaptation is going to feel like. That one I have a really hard time imagining. A very, very Yeah, hard I think time there's. You you got maybe flashback scenes to childhood stuff. You don't but think lie... you want you, you want to do the full reading of all the letters to Ellen. I you don't, don't know, think you don't think I that's don't. a choice. You don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Hot Although that's a voiceover narrative choice that people could make. People do yeah, things. People do. Things. <laughs> Somebody might make that choice. Yeah. The there are, I guess for folks who haven't listened to the episode and don't know what the book is about, there are scenes, especially near the end, like graphic scenes of domestic violence and sexual assault. And you'd have to, I mean, that requires a sensitive treatment to work at all in entertainment on screen. And the book is not exactly going for a sensitive treatment. So I'd be fascinated in what they did Mm -hmm. with it, but also I like I went to see the Fifty Shades of Grey adaptation with, you know, extra popcorn and a little nip of Jack Daniels in my purse. And that was fun. And I do not think that I'm going to go see the Colleen Hoover adaptation. It doesn't have the same like looky loo fun part of it. Yeah. I don't know this. What, what is is there a um, agreed upon quality level about the Fifty Shades of movies, even for people that were into the books? Like, do, do you know where the oh. people who let into the books generally <clears throat> I don't know. By the <laughs> I don't know. The only uh, live opinion that I got, like I went with a group of friends and there were two women sitting a couple rows in front of us who had read the books, but apparently like knew nothing about whether the movies were supposed to be good or not. And they were not pleased. They were like yelling at the screen. Really? Okay. Which was memorable. It was, you know, there were not many of us in the theater. So my friends and I were like cracking up and it was just a little raucous. And these other women were also like, I remember one of them being like, what the hell? <laughs> I was like, I feel you. Remember when E.L. James rewrote the trilogy from the other character's point of view? Oh, remember that was yes. that was a thing that a real human did. Yeah, that was on the that was on the heels, I think, of Stephanie Meyer rewriting some of Twilight from yeah. Edward's perspective. Um, that is oh a real. God. That is a real choice. That's a real do you think? Do you think we're going to get uh, no, it ends with it. us? But no, from the abusive on. husband's I, perspective, I really, I really can't even think about that. That's not. <laughs> that's not fun. Please don't say that. I don't. That hurts my feelings for some Look, reason. Look, man, you brought it up. That. I did. <laughs> I didn't. I. I let it. Ling, I let it hang in the air. That qu- the the follow question to that. I did that. I was a responsible user yep, of that. You did ideas. that. You did that. I did that. Um, <laughs> you were right earlier and now you're wrong and it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess while we're uh, speaking of why I was right, what we're talking about is followed by meant to do a little bit earlier before we, the train left the station, talking to some people in our listening tours about a couple of interesting things. One I didn't know but makes total sense to me is that the the, the book reviewing 
apparatus is um, slow, slow, mm-hmm. slower than it used to be. Things are taking longer to get reviewed. They're getting reviewed deeper into the publication cycle, pre-pub, post-pub. The whole thing is delayed. Having trouble getting reviewers, having trouble getting those reviews on time, tightness in the labor market, people doing other things. Also, reviewing reviewing books is hard work. You got to read the book and then write about it. That's a lot of time. It doesn't pay particularly well. One of the reasons we don't do a lot of reviews straight up here or commission them is because you got to read the book and then you got to write, um, which is very mm-hmm. difficult to do. And I would love to know how Publishers Weekly, who does like 40 to 50, if not more, I haven't even counted. In an average month, they do a lot of reviews and they cover them. They have to schedule them out and farm them out. And we heard that the reviews are coming out later, which is impacting some people in this way, is that they decide on their marketing budget and publicity plans based sometimes, depending on the book, on star reviews, notable reviews, box reviews, lists or other kinds of things that then they can use in the marketing materials, right? It's not so much that the reviews themselves move a lot of units, but they can say Kierkegaard starred reviews. They can say mm-hmm. whatever else it is. And that that the implication is there that the earlier you get that, then the more responsive you can be to some sort of market side indication of pull or some sort of other indicator. So for the best books of the years list especially, a lot of these publishers then are going to use one of NPR concierge, or maybe not that one, but like one of Booklist, <laughs> one of Publishers Weekly, one of Amazon, one of Barnes and Nobles, you know all the, the places, yep. best books of the year in their year-end marketing material. So the sooner they get that, the sooner they can spin up their campaigns, they can get their creatives, they can do their ad buying, and then they can start getting that. And because then they want that to be available for people to order, then booksellers to buy and everything else like that. So I mean, I guess I didn't get quite as far as the marketers needing it for their copy, but there is a whole cycle here, <laughs> the end of which is someone buying it on December 18th. That needs to happen yeah. a lot earlier right. in the cycle, whether we like it or not. From a reader's point of view, I'm not ready yet. From a reader point of view, I'm still reading, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm going to read another 15 to 20 books by the end of the year, so my list will not be complete. But I'm also not reading like I'm a publisher's weekly reviewer that needs to do a list like that. That's not how Book Riot does this list. I won't even have a pick on Book Riot's best books of the year because that's our contributor core. That's what this pod is for. But it is it is serving an it's serving an audience that's somewhat different than someone walking into the Raven um, on mm-hmm. the day after Thanksgiving and, and and shopping for mom and dad um, at some point. So again, interesting to see there. Um, do you want to do this follow-up, Gone Girl? Uh, we, I, we don't want to say too much about it because I want you people to go read this wonderful, right. beautiful piece. Tell people why they should read this piece and what it is. Oh, man. You gifted this to me by yes. text on a day we were both getting on long plane rides, and what a gift it was. Uh, it is called – I think we talked a couple months ago about how there was a Gone Girl Danube mm-hmm. cruise that Gillian Flynn was going to be on, and that the same company was later hosting one with Cheryl Strayed. So a writer for Slate named Imogen West Knights goes on the Gone Girl cruise and wrote about it for Slate just wonderfully. The, the title is My Eight Deranged Days on the Gone Girl Cruise. By the time I found Gillian Flynn, I had lost my mind. <laughs> and it was it was everything I wanted it to be. It also fell right before the new season of The White Lotus, which like, mm. this is kind of a similar flavor. And I was like, this is what I need is just people being unhinged on their vacations with a very sharp observer paying attention to them. So if you, you know, heard that conversation where we were like, what the hell do people do on a Gone Girl cruise? It's as wacky as you might have suspected, but in some ways that I would not have guessed, the flavor <laughs> is very special. <laughs> And we'll just put a link to it in the show notes. This might be my favorite piece of like book adjacent writing of the year. I would like to know a lot about even the backstory of this. Like, did she get yes. this expense? Did how how <laughs> what how uh, how how? I mean, mm-hmm, this is sort of Gonzo mm-hmm. journalism for book nerds. Like, yeah, I loved it. Let me just read one it's paragraph amazing. as a taste because this is just it's just great. It's just so much fun. <laughs> Do read it, but I'm, I'm going to try to induce you. Um, with a teaser. So just a, directly after, so she had gone to, the, the writer had gone to the one of the Gillian, Gillian Flynn talks the night before, um, directly after an extremely arch beauty industry professional from Essex, England, <laughs> who is here with his husband, has some complaints. 
He tells me that he doesn't care about Gillian Flynn. The cruise is all old people. He's been on a Royal Caribbean cruise before and said that was much better and then interrupted himself halfway through with the sentence to tell me to stop frowning. It's bad for your forehead wrinkles. He is also an excellent source for more insight into who hates one another. That's just a taste. That I don't know what to tell you. If, you don't, if you're not interested in that, uh, you know. It's wonderful. Maybe you, need, maybe you need to check your pulse. It's great stuff. Yeah, that's our little gift that's our, that's to our, everyone. Please go read that. Um, let's do frontless for you in a minute. Last thing before we do a break, and then that uh, Tony Morrison on a stamp. Mm-hmm. I am shocked she wasn't already Rebecca. About time is this? It might, is about time? Am I being too well, so, crotchety? Well, I learned in this piece on Lit Hub by Emily Temple that the USPS has a policy that living people are not portrayed on stamps. Yeah. So. We had to wait for her to pass. Um, if it were years. up to me, it's been three years would, post right. office. If this were up to me, the USPS would have their version of like the New York Times's pre-written oh, obituaries, like yeah. <laughs> where they're right. like, "All right, when Toni Morrison goes, because she's up there, we're ready. That stamp mm. is coming out the next week." <laughs> <laughs> For an really audience like of, I don't idea. know, five people that are super into it. <laughs> but you could do it for like beloved musicians and yes. TV figures and Toni Morrison. Have them ready. I will be happy to buy a bunch of these and not stick them on any envelopes. The other it's 2023 honorees read like Ron Swanson typing notable <laughs> things into a typewriter. That's exactly what Ruth I Ruth Bader say Ginsburg, U.S. Women's Soccer, <laughs> Chief Standing Bear, Railroad Station. And Railroad Station. <laughs> Incredible. America, America, butthole. butthole. <laughs> Monday. Um, I w- qu- question. I don't. Maybe the postal service. Do you think the postal service releases sales numbers? Like who, who moves units? Oh, here? I bet railroad station moves a lot of units. Yeah. I as soon as I saw railroad stations, I was picturing Bob's dad, who will absolutely wow. request the railroad station stamps once they're available at the post office. I think it's probably railroad stations. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I was going to say. Women's soccer. There's a lot of there's a lot of educated women that go to the post office to buy stamps, yes. and they will be picking. And it's going to be her with her <laughs> lace collar, and that's just going to move. Yeah, you do a nice little. Maybe I'll do a situation for my desk with a Toni Morrison stamp and an RBG stamp together. Yeah, um, I like, I like that it. they're coming out the same year. That just seems right to me. Yeah. But anyway, Toni Morrison stamps coming. Soon. Also, Ernest J. Gaines, who. Yes. I am afraid doesn't have the reputation that he once did, but the autobiographical of Miss Jane Pittman and A Lesson Before Dying, notably mm-hmm. an Oprah pick, I think that's when he had his, I mean, yes. everyone everyone was blessed. Or, you know, if you were blessed by <laughs> Oprah, it's likely that that was a summit uh, of your career. But yeah. I'm glad to see, I hope people pick up, I, I don't know how this works this way, but if you get a letter with Ernest J. Gaines on it and you read a book because of it, shoot me an email podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I would love to know if schools are still assigning a lesson before dying. We read yeah. it in my, I think, freshman lit class in high school. And I have I vividly remember those conversations. But you don't hear him, his name no. mentioned nearly as much anymore in the conversation as I think it should be. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be one more sponsor break and then talk about uh, our recent reading in Front List Foyer. I know what you're reading. I know what you read. <laughs> we're going to talk about I know what you're reading. I know what you're trying not to finish. Rebecca, here we are. It's kind of like it's kind of like Christmas early afternoon. No, let me. It where is. are we? It's not Christmas morning where you're opening the gifts. It's not yet that um, existential dread of like four thirty on Christmas Day. <laughs> right. What time of day is it for Christmas for you when it comes to reading Song of the Cell by Siddhartha? Murphy? I think it's like one p.m. One p.m. Like I've unwrapped my gifts. Second cup of coffee, maybe third. Second cup of coffee. We had brunch. Yeah. No one's cranky yet. That's right. None of the nieces and nephews are crying. Everybody's yeah. off like playing with their own toys, That's and right. I am in a corner, just holding <laughs> Siddhartha Mukherjee. <laughs> I, I, t- I told you yesterday, and it is absolutely true, I'm only giving myself like 50 pages a day max of Song of the Cell because I am trying to make it last. You it's- also told me that you and Bob hoard Halloween candy, try to f- make it last through Christmas. This is something I don't understand. <laughs> you haven't read, you have, there's Issue Girl you haven't read. Well, you got Halloween well, candy laying around. You're trying not to get through Song of the I Cell. I don't know. is just because I've missed some Issue Guru. I'm going to okay. make up for that. The Halloween right. candy is a discipline game. This is just prolonging pleasure. I'm reading 50 pages a day max of it because it's just, it's so 
good. And I think we are sharing the feeling. I know you finished listening to it on audio of like, it is unfair for someone to it's be not, this I don't good like, of a writer. I, I love it so much. I don't like that. It's it unfair. <laughs> it's so elegant of like this deeply technical stuff, deeply technical scientific information that he makes accessible and fascinating in these beautiful sentences. And a lot of science writers can do accessible and a lot of science writers can do fascinating, but to do accessible, fascinating, elegant, beautiful sentences, like it's, it should not be allowed. No, (laughs) it's just, it's really not fair. It's so, so, so good. I keep stopping to be like, no, Bob, really, you need to read this guy. (laughs) It's like this paragraph about cell mitosis is unbelievable. And you can tell that he's like truly a polymath. There are examples from art and literature and so many other pieces of culture that he ties in as just like tossed off analogies for things like, oh, cool. He knows he's genius. (laughs) He's a bias. It's like a a biologist and an oncologist and a genius writer. And he has somehow room for all of these other things in his brain as well. It's It's a good thing. It's not funny. Truly, truly unfair. <laughs> it's cheeky. Like he's clever, though. Yeah, yeah. You can see the moments. No, where he's, he's definitely like, oh, clever. Like the don't just do something. Stand there. Have you gotten to one of those moments yet? Uh, where <laughs> he inverts that. I was like, oh, that's so. That's so <sighs> crafty. Um, but he's luckily, so he's not laugh out loud funny. Not to say that I am, but at least there's. I don't know. There's something. You know, as uh, as uh, uh, Oedipus is told. Uh, it is not yours to be the master of all things. That way is, is uh-huh. hubris. At least there's something else for a Mercury to work at. You're not funny, it's... Siddhartha. Tough. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Although, if the next book turns out to also be funny, I guess I won't be surprised. No, how like, could you be? Just what can he not do, I think, is how I feel. I would read Siddhartha Mukherjee's history of the phone book at this yeah. point. It's so, I don't care what the next book is about. They're all... He, this is we were talking last week about like if you've read three of them, that's one of your authors at that point. Mm-hmm. This will be my third Mukherjee. Whatever he does next, whatever, whatever. It, it does bring him to the end of a natural trilogy. I mean, he's an oncologist, mm-hmm. and the cell and DNA are all wrapped up together. Again, may, maybe the next one will be an obvious piece of it, the organ, um, or yeah. uh, I think if I were to pick something, I think if he picked evolution or natural selection, that mm-hmm. would be a natural piece as well. Because there's a lot of it. I mean, they're all wrapped up together. But some of what he's doing is an intellectual history, but also a history of the science of that thing, like a history of cell biology. He's like, in 1792 was a banner year for cell biologists. <laughs> like, that's incredible. There was a yeah, year, the Annus Mirabilis for microbiologists. Let's go. Yeah, it's not just or not even primarily what we know about the history of this thing. It's how we came to know it, the story of how we came to know it. And there's almost a like suspense thriller aspect Mm -hmm. to some of it of like, there's some murders. Did you get to the the edge of my seat? Not yet. Okay. Sorry. Not to the murders yet, Um, but I'm ready for it now. It's, it's just wonderful. There's, you know, like intellectual feuds and you know, I love that stuff. (laughs) And people, people writing who like jointly are awarded the letters. Nobel for the same thing that hate each other. I mean, what's better yes. than that? That's wonderful. Stuff. Yeah, and I wonder he's got to have so much in his research from these three books of just fascinating stories. Like I would take a whole book of Siddhartha Mukherjee's like footnotes that didn't make it in. You know? Well, you can see a world where he does an Oliver Sacks like book, where each one mm-hmm. each chapter is like a kind of mm-hmm. a case study, and I would read that. Yeah, the, I the, would read that. The too. magisterial piece of it is the special sauce, I think, to this that they feel like sweeping epics of people yeah. looking at things in microscopes, which is not easy to do. Um, and there's even the early in the book, there's a moment where he's describing one of the first people who saw a living cell under a microscope, and like the mm. frisson of excitement yeah. that, and then how he felt that reading the description but also felt that in the middle of the pandemic he decides to like yeah. build himself a microscope and go get some rainwater <laughs> from the front yard and have this experience himself and i was like i just love you i just love you it's also it tells you that so siddhartha Mukherjee does not spend any time on instagram because you are no. not making your own microscopes <laughs> and looking at rainwater if you've got 
If you've got attention sinkholes laying around. Dude has not been sucked up by What's the TikTok algorithm. What's his workflow, algorithm? Rebecca? Because he's a working oncologist, like running a lab and yeah. doing stuff and then comes I, home and writes. I mean, I heard him on Armchair Expert a couple of weeks ago oh, and they asked him this, like, what is your, how does this work? You're a working oncologist and you're a researcher and you write these books. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, to give you an example, today I went and spent like four minutes, four minutes, four hours in the lab. I came home and had lunch. I worked on a piece that I'm writing for a while. I'm pivoting to do this other thing. And there's just always three or four plates spinning, it sounds like. And what he does on any given day depends on what needs to be done or what kind of attention he feels drawn to give to them. But how someone can pay such good attention to four spinning plates at a time is um, a marvel. These books And the are son marvels. of a gun reads because yeah. you can tell by the references and everything You can else. tell. Just, it's so, you can't write like this. And he talked about that on Armchair also. You cannot write like this without being an avid reader who pays yeah. attention to language and how stories are put together. And he talked about choosing the structure of this book and how, you know, linear time was not the structure for this book, where it did work as the structure for some of the other ones. Just, he's, it's just so good. I think this might unusually for a nonfiction title end up being like my book of the year. It's It's very possible. It's just... I wondered about it's, that. It's phenomenal. I'm going to have to think about it. I will be finished with it by December. Yeah. <laughs> but for right now, it's just me and Sid. That's what I'm calling him now. Mm. For like 25 to 50 pages a day, I'm going to make it last. It's so good. And then um, right I before... I still think... Oh, oh I was going to say, if you haven't read Mukherjee, you hear us raving, <sighs> and this book is really great. I still think Emperor of All Melodies is a place to start. I agree. But it is. That's... Again, it's a little bit of... That's a just... Being persnickety knock your about socks order, off. but that's... Um, anyway, did you get anything else? So you were only reading 50 pages of this, so you had time to do other stuff. I did. Well, I was reading George Saunders for... How many microscopes (laughs) did you build since you weren't reading so much? Three? (laughs) Exactly zero. Yeah, okay. Uh, But I didn't spend any time on TikTok either, so I guess Mukherjee and I have that in common. That's right. Um, I did... I read the George Saunders for our next episode, but then I I finished The Rabbit Hutch, which I was working on Mm. last week, and I landed in the space of this is a really good and interesting debut. It does some interesting, weird things. I do think it's an impressive and... It's an impressive debut novel, but I think I did it a disservice unknowingly going from it to George Saunders because I was like, wow, this is interesting and weird. And then you open George Saunders and in the first three sentences, it's like, oh, wait, no, this is what interesting and weird <laughs> feels like. So it's Hold my beer suffering. that was made by a robot <laughs> who's been transformed into a frog dictator. Yeah, it, it sort of accidentally, unintentionally suffered by comparison. Yeah. Tough, it wouldn't tough be, comp. It's not going to be in my top five or 10 of the year, but I did think it was interesting. And the I think I'm more interested in the discourse around it and how that has even happened than in well, the Oh, let book me pull itself. up my um, debut novel blurb generator here and let me see if you agree with this. Okay, what I've got, uh, let me spin the wheel here. It mm-hmm. comes up with, would you call it a uh, auspicious debut, The Rabbit Hutch? Mm, no. Oh, okay. All right, fair enough. Um, I also did George Saunders. Um, uh-huh. I finished Song of the Cell. I uh, started two audiobooks, which is unusual for me. Yeah, um, that is. I liked so Dennis Busakaris does the narration for Song of the Cell, and he's my favorite narrator, especially of nonfiction. So I just, I you know, I clicked on the Dennis Busakaris page on Audible. You know, instead of making a microscope, that's what I do. And he is also the narrator of Jan Winner's memoir. Jan Winner being the fa- one of the co-founders of Rolling mm-hmm. Stone. That book just came out. And I was interested in that, but I needed a push, and this was enough of a push because I was looking for an audiobook, and so that's one. But I'd also bought, and I forgot I'd pre-ordered Inciting Joy by Ross Gay on Apple, yes. and I got a notification, so I couldn't help but start that. Have you? How is? Have that? you started that? No, I have it in print, and I think it's going to be my like evening wind down. Um, book. I mean, it's amazing. It's awesome. Okay, great. Uh, I'm doing on audio. He's a wonderful narrator. Again, memoirs, essays, my preferred autobiography is my preferred medium is, is um, audio. He's a, he's a really good narrator. I'm into it. Let's talk about it when you're done. We can talk about it on the show. Okay. And then what was the other? Oh, those are the two audiobooks. Yeah. And then I'm returning to, oh, and I finished Invisible Things by Matt Johnson, um, mm. who wrote Pym and another book that I can't think of right now. Uh, this book, it was really interesting. I think it was kind of like Saunders-like but maybe would have been better as a short story because I'm not sure the premise held up for a full novel. So the premise is there's a 
colony on the one of the moons of Saturn under a bubble that's basically like a small American town and it operates as if a small American town and sometimes people huh. disappear on Earth and just show up there. Weird. That does and, feel like a short story. Yeah, and then what, you know, things happen. More of the premise would just give it away. Which sounds a little bit more like a Sonder, a long one. You know, you get 30, 40 mm-hmm. pages out mm-hmm. of it. But more than that felt like too much. I thought the invention was really neat. The characters were a little tough and scattered. I really liked Matt Johnson's brain. I thought this was fascinating, some of the mm-hmm. stuff going on here. But I think the signal, like a novella to lead a short story or a longer short story, or maybe it needed to even be bigger in scope. I'm not really sure. It kind of felt like betwixt and between. Though I'm really glad that I read it, I guess, is, you know, sometimes I like an interesting thing that doesn't work quite exactly over that well. You know, and weirdly, I'm more glad I read this than Sea of Tranquility, even though I think by any objective standard, Sea of Tranquility is a quote unquote better book. But this Mm -hmm. I I thought five months were more interesting and engaged with because it was a little less hermetically sealed in in shrunk wrap, which I kind of guess ultimately is where I'm coming down on Sea of Tranquility. A little too neat Uh, for my taste. Yeah. Was this more of an interesting mess? I think so. I think so. Um, yeah. It was on your, like, that. this was on your personal, like, ones yes. you were really looking forward to for the season, I remember. And I think I was whelmed by it. Which is some, If you're looking yeah. for some, forward to something and you're whelmed by it, I guess that's what you want. Mm-hmm. So there we go. That's my recent reading. Okay. We've got to take a quick break, and I've got to make some editing notes because Rebecca <laughs> has gone blue. <laughs> it's been a long week, Jeff. And by the time you hear this, you won't know what I'm referring to. <laughs> But I'm blushing. I'm even hitting Control F to find it. I'm going to have to like cover my eyes. I'm not sure if we do this. I'm a little sorry and a little delighted. It's okay. I'm fine. I'm a, I'm a big boy. Rebecca, thank you as always. Podcast.com. Or no, what am I doing? Bookwrite.com slash listen. Podcast.com is nothing. And it's probably being squatted for, for someone to buy. Uh, Bookwrite. <laughs> Podcast at bookwrite.com. Bookwrite.com slash listen. And check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Show notes, links. Go read that slate piece. Um, and uh, if you want to email me your favorite anecdote line from that slate piece, I will definitely Please read do. It. Yeah. All right, Rebecca. Talk to you later. Bye.